Hello. Well, we are back. This is the start of our second series of Bloody Violent History, the podcast for those of you who enjoy an historical romp. My name is Tom Ashton, and his name is James Jackson. Or more accurately, I should say, I'm back, as Jamie has been here all along, fine-tuning his received pronunciation with short, well, they were meant to be short, bloody bites, podcast nuggets to season your historical know-how. In my defence, it's still me on the edit and upload tasks, so I haven't been entirely idle. We have a great series teed up for you in 2022. Oh yes, we've been busy recording. We're not being recorded. Perhaps some of you caught yours truly making a brief, blotch-faced appearance on Guy Martin's Lancaster Bomber tribute, care of Channel 4. Now you know why we're happier behind the microphone rather than in front of the camera. Anyhow, here are some of the subjects Jamie and I will be talking about. We have two episodes on secrets in so much as we poke a couple of sticks into the murky world of secret police, having first taken a look at secret sites. The secret site episode falls into our subcategories of 100 bloody objects. We're up to 14 of these to date, so you're going to have to stick with us for quite some time yet to get to 100. And if you have a bloody object in mind, let us know, and we might just have a stab at it. Email us at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Still in the same sort of covert scene, we have an episode on camouflage. It's meant to be revealing, but who knows, you will be the judge. And sprinkled in amongst all of this quality content, Jamie will continue to put out his bloody bites, the glossary items of our show. Infamous Castles being the next one in the pipeline, and that will follow shortly after this. There's more grubby action when we grapple with mercenaries, the hard hand of death. And then we tackle pirates, scourge of the sea, operating outside national boundaries. And assassination. When all else fails, let's just bump him off. And yes, it normally is a him, but beware, once the target has been dispatched, guess what? There's an even bigger bastard waiting in the wings. Haven't we seen that in the past 20 years and more? That episode will be published in a fortnight. Over Lent and Easter, I will publish a three-parter on IEDs, the Improvised Explosive Device, comprising fascinating interviews with a soldier who fought in this environment, a combat surgeon who dealt with the frontline casualties, and a minefield engineer who continues to clear up the post-conflict messes left behind. It's gritty, very moving, and in the end there is surprising hope and good news. And there will be more podcasts on top of that. Remember, what really helps us is if you share, by text, email or whatever, an episode you've enjoyed by sending it to one other person. If that person is not familiar with apps and Spotify and so on, then send them a link to our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Here they can listen direct 
to any or all of the published episodes. While you're at it, we'd love five stars and a review on Apple Podcasts. But if you have to make a choice and you only want to make one choice, just send somebody else an episode. That would really help us. Anyway, so it goes. There you have it. Thanks for listening. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome back to Bloody Bites. It's Jamie here. So, why the fangs and that crazy cape? I ask because today's subject is infamous castles, depravity and dungeons. Castles have been around a long time. The walls of Jericho go back to 8000 BC and they may seem impregnable, those walls. They may dominate the landscape. They may be symbols of oppression or bastions of defense and defiance, but they can be undermined by physical eruption or political human skullduggery. Back to Jericho, those walls collapsed in 16th century BC, probably not because of Joshua, but because of an earthquake. And you can see that all the way through history, that castles that might seem impregnable, might seem invincible, actually don't do their job. Back in 1179, Saladin managed to take the crusader force of Jacob's Ford on the Jordan River because it hadn't been properly completed and he just undermined it and besieged it and took it fairly quickly. In 1187, after the Battle of Hattin, uh, Saladin managed to send the Grand Master of the Templars around as a hostage, ordering his men to surrender. So those famed Templars simply gave up the ghost and left their bastions. Later on in 1271, when Sultan Baybars besieged the famed Crac de Chevalier, itself undermined by earthquakes a century before, uh, he simply delivered a letter, a forged letter, claiming to be the, from the Grand Master of the Hospitallers, ordering the defenders of the castle to give up. And that's what they did. In fact, they probably surrendered because they knew they were cut off from the sea. And it's always the castles that are along the coastline that seem to hold out the longest because they can be resupplied by ship. And that's true of the Crusader enclaves of Acre and elsewhere, or Edward I's castles of Conwy and Carnarvon uh, on the coast of Wales. So castles dominate. And people talk about the difference between forts and castles. Forts tend to be defensive outposts. Castles have strategic import, and they've embedded themselves in our consciousness. I mean, look at the castles of England. You had King Edward II murdered, perhaps with a red-hot poker up his arse, in Berkeley Castle. You had King Charles I desperately trying to escape on two occasions from Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight. Once he got himself stuck ignominiously between the bars on his cell window. And then you had, of course, 
poor old Mary, Queen of Scots, being beheaded at Fotheringay Castle. So all the way through history, they've been imprinted on our minds. And quite often they last, they survive, because they're simply recycled. They're used for other purposes. Take, for example, Dover Castle. It was originally built from the beginning of the invasion by the Normans of England in 1066, so later that century. Uh, Dover Castle was constructed, but you saw it being reused during the Second World War. It became the headquarters. The tunnels below it were used to plan the evacuation from Dunkirk when over 338,000 British and French soldiers were taken off the beaches uh, during the period May 26th to June the 4th, 1940. An extraordinary effort. And that was Dover Castle at the middle of the action. Then you had Beaufort Castle, that mighty crusader castle that had the misfortune of ending up in the border of Lebanon. And that was completely hammered by the Israeli army during Operation Peace for the Galilee in 1982, because the PLO, the Palestinians, uh, used it as an artillery base, observation base and headquarters, and were firing rockets from it on the Israelis. So Israeli F-16 fighters smashed the east wall, and the Israeli army occupied it and then blew it up as they left. So uh, it survived for centuries, only to be almost destroyed and very badly damaged in the 20th century. Then, of course, you get castles or forts such as Fort Moncton, number one military training establishment, which is that sort of James Bond-like setting for MI6, where they do a lot of their training, and it has a helicopter pad and small arms ranges and lecture rooms and an MI6 museum. And above the gatehouse, C, the director of MI6, has a suite of rooms. And it's actually where the Soviet defector Gordievsky stayed when he came over, came across from the Soviet Union in the early 1980s. So all these castles and these forts uh, have new roles later on, have new lives. But some of them have extraordinarily sinister histories. So the first section really that I want to look at is what I call the heart of darkness. A good example of that is Schloss Hartheim, that notorious castle in Austria, 120 miles west of Vienna, close to Linz, built in the early 17th century. It became notorious for Axion T4, Axion Tiergartenstrasse 4, named after Hitler's desire to purge, to eliminate, exterminate uh, people who were physically or mentally disabled. It was the most horrific program. Within the first two years, 70,000 people were killed. Uh, anyone under the age of three who had disabilities was immediately killed. Quite often, their parents were told that their children were being sent to special medical centers where they were exterminated. And it was really the training ground, the precursor for the Holocaust, the horrors that came later on. And many of the people who worked in that Axion T4 program went on to run the death camps. And you take uh, Schloss Hartheim, uh, their 
30,000 people were murdered. And later on, uh, people were brought, women were brought from Ravensbrück concentration camp with TB, and they were gassed at Hartheim as well. And Hartheim killed 30,000 uh, physically and mentally disabled people, people with Down syndrome. And the person who was in charge of that, who supervised it, was none other than Franz Stangl. And he cut his teeth there because he went on to become the notorious commandant of Treblinka, that terrible death camp, part of Operation Reinhardt in Poland, part of the camp system that was there to kill the 2.2 million Jews in Poland. And Treblinka itself was responsible for exterminating 800,000 people. And Franz Stangl uh, ran that. And it all started at Schloss Hartheim. And you just wonder why the Nazis started with Operation Action T4. And it was probably to firstly clear out all the institutions so that anyone wounded in the Second World War would have more bed space when Hitler invaded Eastern Europe. It was also a means for the Nazis to get money and valuables from those they killed. Uh, and of course, it trained that cadre of people uh, to run the death camps later on. Uh, that's even before you get on to that extraordinary, bizarre, terrible notion of the super race that the Nazis were trying to perpetuate. And you do think that maybe someone like Goebbels himself with his club foot uh, might have ended up in one of those gas chambers or receiving a lethal injection. So Hartheim sits there as a terrible example of, of what happens to some of these castles. There are other places as well in history. There was Alexanderovskaya, which was the center for Ivan the Terrible when he left Moscow in the 16th century and decided to set up base in this little enclave. And that's where he created his Oprichniki, his secret police, the guys who rode out on their horses with severed wolf's heads and skulls rattling uh, around their saddles to butcher peasants, serfs and aristocrats alike. He, he drove out from his Alexanderovskaya, uh, the aristocrats of the area, 12,000 of them, to fend for themselves in the snow. And if any peasants helped them, they would be crucified or beheaded or torn to pieces. So this was his beginning, the beginning of his paranoia and oppression, his persecution of the Russian people. And that really sort of fed into the Russian soul, the belief in suffering and oppression and cruelty. And it was a terrible thing. And Oprichnina, his his belief, his system of persecution started there and was carried on uh, throughout the rest of Russian history. And you could see it in the Soviet system as well. But the fort there became uh, notorious uh, for uh, oppression, for the sort of bad vibes it radiated. You can see this in another castle and another area Wallachia, or what is, I suppose, called modern-day Romania, because here you have, in the 15th century, someone like Vlad III, Vlad the Impaler. 
And everyone talks about Bran Castle, uh, which is in Transylvania, which wasn't really his fiefdom. He did invade the area uh, quite often. But Vlad became famous and is a national hero in Romania because he stood up to the Turks. And the, the term impaler is um, no accident because he, he was absolutely notorious for impaling the Saxons he captured in his raids into Transylvania. And he also, when he stood up to the Turks, he did a lot of his impalings around his castle of Pernari on Mount Cetatia. And it became notorious. In fact, when he fled a battlefield, or at least made a tactical retreat from a battle with the Turks in 1462, he just left behind a field of stakes with Turks impaled on them as a warning to those who were following. Uh, he was eventually assassinated, but not before he had laid waste to the area and given rise to a legend. And that legend was later added to by the Hungarian Countess Bahori, who ruled a part of Slovakia. And she became notorious in the early 17th century for bleeding virgins, murdering virgin girls and bathing in their blood. And the King of Hungary eventually had her bricked up in rooms in 1610 in her castle. She died after four years in 1614, but those fed in to the whole Dracula myth and to that whole Gothic idea of castles and vampires. And that's why Dracula um, makes a fleeting appearance or a, a, a flitting appearance uh, in this podcast. It adds to the luster and the history of notorious and infamous castles. But castles spread around the world for obvious reasons. Fortifications were required. And in places such as India, when you get forts such as Marangha, there you had the rulers of the area doing terrible deeds. In fact, like so many castles, when it was built, uh, a man was buried alive beneath it. And his descendants actually live there today. And there's a gate in that fortress castle and that palace complex uh, in which the handprints of the wives of the Maharaja Man Singh uh, are placed because those wives were all committing sooty, all threw themselves, immolated themselves on the cremation fire of their dead husband. Uh, they had to volunteer. They were forced to do that. And that was as late as 1843, in spite of the best efforts of the British to ban that particular practice. So different castles, different places, different horrors, but they survived down the centuries. Then we get on to what I would call our section two, the heart of dungeons, because although we've mentioned infamous prisons in a previous Bloody Bites podcast, it's worth talking about the recycling of these castles, that if they were built to keep people out, they could certainly keep people in. And so you have terrible castles with terrible reputations, such as the Bastille, built by 
Charles V in France to defend the eastern wall of Paris because the French always believed in fortifying Paris, which was then besieged. You look at the siege of Paris in 1870-1871 and those terrible fortifications, those massive structures, didn't help at all. It simply enclosed and imprisoned the people of Paris, uh, just like the Maginot Line was bypassed in the Second World War. You know, the, these fortifications were often of little use. But the Bastille became notorious, first of all, through the um, use of it as a prison by Louis XI. And then it came into its own during the period of Louis XIV. And he ended up imprisoning well over 2,000 people during his reign. It sort of averaged between 40 to 50 at any one time. And then come the French Revolution in 1789, the storming of the Bastille on June, July the 14th, there you have a crowd turning up because by that stage, the Bastille had this reputation of secrecy because there were stories like the man in the iron mask. There were political prisoners who were there really as personal prisoners of the king. They were there under the lettre de cachet, uh, under a sealed letter, the sealed authority of the king. And so the crowd turned up determined to overthrow the place, to take the place. The drawbridge was captured and came down, and Bernard Delaunay, the officer in charge, who hadn't fired his cannon at the crowd, ended up being killed. But in fact, there were only about seven prisoners kept inside when the place was stormed. So, so often, this reputation for infamy, the, the legend, the myth, is bigger than the actuality of the situation. And the Bastille, the destruction of it, started the day after it was taken. And by November 1789, it was all but destroyed and nothing really remained. So that was the Bastille. But France has a reputation for forts and castles that have been used as prisons. We already talked about Chateau d'If in, in our infamous prisons, uh, Bloody Bites. But there's another fort, and that was Fort Montluc, that became so notorious during World War II uh, because the fort had been built in 1831, the prison was built in the early 20th century, and during the Second World War it contained about 15,000 prisoners. Uh, up to a 1,000 of them were killed, many of them by the Butcher of Lyon himself, the head of Gestapo, Klaus Barbie, and he was an appalling individual. Uh, one of his massacres that he perpetrated on the prisoners was in uh, August the 20th, 1944, where he took 120 of them in two buses, six miles south, put them in a deserted building, and had his men uh, shoot each of the people in the back of the head or the neck and, and forced the prisoners to climb on top of each other before they were killed. And then the prisoners, some of whom were still alive, uh, they were set alight and the building was dynamited and body parts uh, flew around the entire area and landed people's gardens and on people's houses. It was absolutely horrific. But 80 German army hostages held by the French resistance were immediately killed 
uh, after that incident. And four days later, someone posing, a French resistance man posing as a Gestapo officer, turned up at the jail and the French resistance took it and it was liberated. So that is the notoriety of Fort Mont-Luc. Then you get on to other forts, such as uh, the Peter and Paul Fortress. That too had a terrible reputation, just like the Bastille, and it became a symbol of repression and oppression and what was foisted on the Russian people by the Tsars. And the Soviets and their propaganda machine made great effort to portray it as a symbol of everything that was bad about the Tsarist regime. It was, after all, where the Decembrists, the revolutionary group who had wanted a constitutional monarchy, uh, were incarcerated in 1825 when their coup attempt failed against the Tsars. So by the time it was stormed in 1917, it had built up this reputation. But again, like the Bastille, which only had seven prisoners, there were only 19 prisoners held at that time in the Peter and Paul Fortress. So perhaps it wasn't quite as bad as, as it had been painted. There are many other prison fortresses uh, around the world. There was Chillon overlooking Lake Geneva, and that had been a prison from you know, the 13th, 14th century onwards and had been used by the Dukes of Savoy as a prison. So all these prisoners, you know, that prison alone, you know, it had dungeons carved into the rock. It still has, if you go there today, it has the marks there of prisoners who had walked in chains backwards and forwards across the, the dungeon floor. Uh, they're pretty grim places. And then, of course, you get those fortresses, those castles used in the Second World War to incarcerate prisoners. Places like Spandenburg that uh, one American POW had tried to escape from uh, in his trolley car using the telephone lines from the fort to get across on a zip wire uh, across the dry moat. And it, it just sagged and he had been caught, uh, lucky not to have been shot. There was a British prisoner there who actually bricked himself into a cell uh, in the hope that he wouldn't be found when the castle was evacuated. Little did he know that new prisoners would arrive and he would be caught. But that, too, had a notorious reputation. Then, of course, there was Kulditz that had incarcerated the bad boys, over 300 prisoners who were inveterate escapers from other prison camps during the war. And we talked about this in our Great Escapes podcast, but that had an extraordinary reputation. And actually, only one British prisoner was shot for trying to escape during the war from Kulditz. But it was always considered impregnable and impossible to escape from. But some did get out, and the escape attempts were legendary. And as we're talking about the war, it takes us on really to the postscript, because the castle I want to talk about here is Schloss Hohenwerfen. It's an extraordinary castle because the first part of it was built in the 11th century, the early 11th century, and then it was simply added to, and it became the hunting lodge the go-to place, the retreat of the Archbishop Princes of Salzburg. And it's an amazing place. 
During the Second World War, it became a prison, it became an education camp for the Nazis, but most famously, it appeared in the backdrop to the sound of music during the picnic scene. It also became the location for that epic World War II movie, Where Eagles Dare, as the Schloss Adler. So Hohen Werfen had a life after its original role. And who can forget Richard Burton, accompanied by a bunch of suspiciously purple-nosed, overweight English thespians as they went as commandos to release and retrieve an American hostage held by the Nazis. It's a fantastic movie and one well, well worth watching. So that was Schloss Adler, or in its real life, Schloss Hohenwerfen. And it just showed the wealth of so many of these prince bishops uh, around Germany and Austria uh, from the Middle Ages onwards. So that's Notorious Castles, a romp through the ramparts of history. And in the words of Richard Burton, broadsword calling Danny Boy, out. Danny Boy calling broadsword out indeed. Thanks for that, Jamie. I think we might have to rename this episode Notorious Infamous Castles. I hope you enjoyed the show. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.